I'm Deirdre Boza, and you're listening to CNBC's Tech Check. Our show is live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. Good Thursday morning. Welcome to Tech Check. I'm Carl Quintanilla with Deirdre Bosa and John Ford. Today, tech and the NASDAQ continue to search for a bottom. We'll talk about some buying opportunities as Bitcoin touches 25K. Uh, speaking of tech that's taken a breather, this hour, a deep dive on Alphabet. You're not going to want to miss D's exclusive with CEO Sundar Pichai. We're talking recession risk, whether the economy has seen peak inflation, plus how the company's dealing with regulation and a lot more. All of that is coming up in a few minutes. Yep, we're going to start with the selling in tech and crypto. Strange volatile day today. The Nasdaq was down more than a percent and a half before climbing up into the green, um, now up by more than a percent. Meme stocks like GameStop and AMC. GameStop up 20%, AMC up 14%. Um, you know, Bitcoin trying to climb out of a hole, trying to regain 30K with other cryptos still down. Here to discuss it all, CNBC senior markets commentator, Mike Santoli. Hey, Mike. Hey, John. Yeah, you know, that litany that you just went through there represents a lot of, I think, psychological round number levels that were breached to the downside. And it's been such a one-way market that at least tactically, in the very short term, the fastest moving traders said, does it really make sense to get further greedy on the downside, at least for the moment? S&P 500 gets the 19.5% drop from the peak. Uh, NASDAQ to a 30% decline. You had AMC go into the single-digit prices uh, at GameStop below 100, and all of these things that seem like, you know, we're, we're gathering up the extremes. I don't think you want to necessarily infer too much more from, from the action than that, except that it has been uh, pretty much a shutout being uh, pitched by the, by the Bears, uh, and, and so it seems hard to uh, believe that's going to go on for too much longer in a straight line, but uh, a little bit of relief, at least for, for the while. Uh, also, adding to that relief, maybe uh, Mike is Bullard last night and Yellen just now in front of the House saying they don't see the stablecoin blow up as systemic, yeah. at least not yet. Yeah, and I see these in the category of the absence of new negatives, right? None of that stuff to me was, was priced in the market. We haven't priced the 75 basis point move. We haven't priced the idea that the stablecoin meltdown is, is actually going to impair the financial system in any way. But at least to hear uh, that, in fact, we don't have to perhaps immediately worry about those things when the market is stretched this far uh, and people have already been really you know, focused much more on the risk than the reward. There you have a little bit of, uh, of relief in the short term. Mike, we're going to talk more about this later, but I wanted to get your take. Um, the rebound today is, is so curious because we're seeing the speculative areas of tech uh, come back. And you have sort of two mega cap names, Apple and Microsoft, continuing to underperform after Apple's big drop yesterday. What is that telling us? Well, it's kind of the first in, first out, right? The speculative parts of the market were first into this downturn. They, they actually have taken a ton of punishment. They are the most heavily shorted areas. Uh, the lagging indicators have been, especially Apple, Amazon to a lesser degree, but it's kind of been hovering uh, more or less in its uh, you know, pandemic level range. And you know, there's a give up trade in, in some of the safe harbors. I, that's, that's the way I would uh, view it right there. Yes, of course, short coverings involved. Short coverings always involved uh, when the market bounces off of a, of a steep decline. Uh, but that's not always you know, the full story. It gathers up people who've been underinvested, who've been waiting for a chance. Uh, and, and so I think that's, uh, that's kind of the push-pull uh, of the moment we're in right now. Mike, how important is the volume when things bounce like this and how long the bounces hold? 
all of it's important, John. We're, we are in the in the mode of, of really uh, kind of like reading the, the entrails of every move uh, to figure out exactly what goes on and whether you can believe it. I don't think absolute volumes matter that much at this point. You want to see there be, uh, ideally, if we do get a one-day rally, you want to see just how broadly inclusive the, the rally was. You know, is 90% of the volume to the upside? We had a 90% down day a couple times in the past week or so. Uh, so that's the kind of stuff we look for. It's way too early after a 30% decline mm -hmm. in the NASDAQ, after what's gone on in crypto, to say that, you know, one bounce is going to be a thing. There's a pretty high burden of proof that faces the market, even if the risk reward is improved as prices have come down. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Mike? Thanks, as always. Now, as we discussed, some big, some big tech does continue to be under pressure today, despite the rebound in the broader sector over the last few months. Uh, it had held up better than some of those more speculative areas. This week, we continue to see names like Apple and Microsoft underperform. Against that backdrop, Alphabet had held its first in-person I.O. developers conference in three years in Mountain View yesterday. We were there. Uh, the audience got hardware teases like a Pixel watch and plans for a Google Glass successor. Pichai also announced developments in artificial intelligence and breakthroughs in language processing. Now, that return to normalcy and the energy in the amphitheater, though, it was in contrast with what was going on in the markets and economy. As I sat down with him, the Nasdaq closed lower by another 3%. So that is where I started. I asked Pichai how vulnerable Alphabet is to a recession. We definitely see uncertainty ahead like everyone else. And uh, the, the good thing is we've been around as a company for a while. I've worked through past moments like this, be it 2008 or the early days of the pandemic. Uh, and we take a long-term view. Obviously, when you're you know, serving across the economy, uh, you know, and a lot of the macroeconomic factors like GDP growth end up affecting advertisers spend as well. But a lot of like what you saw today at Google I.O. too is when we are investing in AI, we're one of the largest investors of R&D in the world, and we take a long-term view and we work hard to make our products better. And so, you know, so I think, I think for me, the work we are doing today will pay dividends two to three years out. So that's how I approach it. When you say that you're seeing uncertainty, where is that showing up right now? For example, this morning we got inflation numbers, some saying that maybe it suggests a peak. Are you seeing the same thing in the data that Google has in terms of the travel data, the purchasing, the ad spend? You know, we definitely see travel recovering. Uh, you know, there are signs that people are clearly moving post the pandemic, and so there is some return to normalcy. But there are, what, make, what gives uncertainty is there are so many different factors, be it supply chain issues or be it rising energy prices, and, and so trying to add all of that up together is where the uncertainty is. What about is. inflation specifically? Does the data that you see suggest that maybe we're at a peak? Are you optimistic? Uh, I think it's going to take time to work through. Uh, a lot depends on, I do think people are seeing relief in certain sectors, but then you have other new uh, areas which are showing problems, uh, maybe due to supply chain constraints. But I think it's going to take us some time to work through this. Like where, new areas? Uh, you know, just, uh, you know, energy has been an issue, uh, as an example. In some cases, rentals have gone up and, uh, you, know, so, you know, food prices. So it's, it's a, co a complex factor, particularly globally. Right. Um, now, at I.O., you guys had a number of announcements. Uh, you're going to be spending more. And I wonder, um, you're still a one and a half 
trillion dollar, almost a billion trillion dollar company. Your workforce is now more than 150 people strong or Google are strong. How nimble are you as a company if we continue to see this economic slowdown? When would you start to consider scaling back plans? Would you be able to quickly? Well, I've always, uh, you know, prided on our ability to be nimble when needed. And, and you know, as a company, we want to be resilient in moments like this. We are, we are very excited about the opportunities ahead. And so we are investing. Uh, we are continuing to hire, bringing in great talent. There are areas where we are in where we are seeing a secular transformation like cloud and the transformation to digital. So we, we are continuing to invest, but, you know, we'll obviously given the uncertainty, uh, you know, pay, pay close attention to it. And to the extent, you know, as a company, we need to do something differently, like we've always done. Uh, you know, we, we, we do this responsibly. What do you think it's been, what do you think, what makes your strategy different? Let me ask it this way, than some of your peers, that you're able to hire 12,000 people this year. You're able to spend almost $10 billion on infrastructure. Why do you think you're in this position versus some of the other companies now that are coming out and saying that they're going to have to freeze hiring plans or even do layoffs? Well, I mean, as you, as you said at the start, you know, all of us are impacted in varying degrees. I think we are, you know, we, we invest in foundational technologies and we are in many areas. So in some ways we are diversified. Uh, obviously we have important products like search and YouTube. Uh, we have computing products uh, involving Android Play and our uh, hardware devices and, and cloud is a big a area of opportunity for us as well. So I think we are exposed to many, many sectors and we do this globally as a company and I, I think that allows us to take a long-term view and work through these phases. Yeah, you guys spend a lot on research and development as evidenced here. Um, I want to talk about some of that diversification because Alphabet is a company of many different businesses. You also touch on many different societal issues. Um, so I want to talk about some of them, how they fit in today, how they fit into Alphabet's future. Developers first, since we are here at I.O. Um, how do you manage it, shifting App Store dynamics? Does Google deserve to continue to take a fee for providing a platform for developers and companies, or is something changing here? Is that era over as Match and some other companies have argued that it should be? You know, look, there's an important area and we've been uh, listening and we want to make sure we get it right. I think it's important to remember we invest in Android. Uh, we provide the operating system for free, uh, both to OEMs and to carriers and, you know, and, and, and try and make phones affordable. And we invest a lot in keeping the platform secure and we give the distribution with built-in payments to reach. And, you know, and for me, the vast majority of developers, uh, you know, pay reasonable fees and, you know, uh, around 15% or so. And, but I think it's important for that, for us to continue investing in the platform too. So I think we have struck the right balance and we're constantly looking how we can add value to developers. And there are so many developers who are, who have embraced the model are investing on the platform, but you know, these are important conversations. And so we'll continue to listen to them. You say that you provide Android for free. Do you mean to the consumer? To the consumer, to OEMs, and you know, we, we invest thousands of engineers. Yes. And under open source license, provide the operating system for free. But it's what the developers pay in terms of those fees and commissions that allow you to provide that for free, right? So that is happens? part of our business model. Exactly. Yes. So what happens if those fees go away? Is that why you don't think they ever will go away? Because they're important to keep the ecosystem going? We provide an economic value there, and, and I think so. it's rooted in foundational economics in terms of the value we provide. But 
we have made uh, uh, many changes to our developer program. So we made a lot of changes, and I think you know, we brought many developers on board, and so I think we'll be able to navigate the transition well. Let's talk social media next. Um, we certainly watched YouTube's growth and how quickly it has been growing, although we saw that decelerate a little bit the past quarter. Um, what does free speech on the internet mean to you? Well, I think, you know, free speech, I, I've always viewed it as, uh, you know, foundational. I grew up in a large democracy and, you know, the importance of free speech and giving people a voice, I think, uh, is really foundational. As Google, uh, you know, search is one of the products Research represents what's on the web today. Uh, we, you know, we only take down stuff that is against the law, and so uh, the the core principles of free speech are deeply built into the platform. Sounds very similar to how Elon Musk describes free speech, and that they will only comply with the law. Would you say that your approach is the same as him, or help us understand how your strategy may be different? Well, I can talk about our approach. I mean, it, it's on a strong principle of uh, free speech. We comply with uh, laws and regulations. We also have, in, in a product like YouTube, where we recommend and where we can amplify content, you know, we do have community guidelines. So we have clearly stated policies and, and we, you know, take action. And that's what actually allows us to maximize free speech, uh, help keep the platform safe for everyone involved. Uh, and, and I think there's a balance to be struck there. But I do think underlying all that is a strong commitment to free speech and, you know, and that's how we approach it. How closely have you been following or not been following what Elon Musk has been saying about how he might run Twitter? How might that change the landscape for you? How much are you thinking about this? You know, I'm an I'm a avid user of Twitter. I think it's an extraordinarily important product for the world. Uh, I've gotten a lot out of it, and I think there is value in investing in it uh, for the long term. And, you know, and I, I think that is important because it plays an important role in, uh, in democratic society. So I share that view, and, you know, I'm... Uh, you know, I would like to see the product continue to get better. And so, you know, that's what I think about. Um, if he reverses the ban on former President Donald Trump, um, how does that change or not change the calculus for YouTube? I mean, I mean these are different products. And, you know, we, we, we have, we've always had policies and we apply them consistently regardless of who it is. And, and we have deep experts who look at it and, you know, and, and will continue making our decisions. And how does AI shape? I know you spoke a lot about that on stage today. Um, and this whole idea of maybe open sourcing um, a social network like Twitter or YouTube, do you think that would help counter some of the free speech issues in our society today? Um, or would it amplify them? Well, I think, you know, I think, I think it's important to give people a sense of transparency. And, you know, and there are many ways to accomplish that. And, for example, we publish our community guidelines, uh, or, or in the case of search, how our raters evaluate for search quality, we publish that uh, publicly. And so I think there are different ways to approach this, and I think it's important to do it in a way in which spammers and others who are uh, trying to work around your products are not able to do so as well. So. But I'm glad there are different approaches being discussed. Right. Um, now, privacy is another area being reshaped, um, being debated in public. On Tech Check, we have jokingly say that the regulators in chief are the EU and Tim Cook. What do you think about one company, Apple, sort of unilaterally changing the privacy landscape as we've seen it done over the last year or so? You know, I think, um, well, there are many, many factors which are driving privacy. For me, I would argue that 
it is users evolving expectations that are uh, moving the privacy needle more than anything else. And you know, users increasingly in a digital world, I think, I think they are asking for uh, privacy and I think all of us need to respond to it. There's been extraordinarily important legislation like GDPR and all of us have, have had to work to comply with that. And you saw as Google, you know, we are helping organize information, make it better for you. And as part of that, there are products where we do that, be it Gmail photos, we never use that for advertising. The products we monetize with advertising, we give users clear choice and controls, including more controls we announced today. Uh, so I think the way I think about it is people care deeply about privacy. It is going to constantly evolve and we need to st stay a step ahead of that evolving user expectations. So people care deeply. You're seeing that people want more control, especially over things like tracking and targeting. I wonder why then has Google not moved as quickly as Apple in terms of third-party cookies um, when clearly consumers are opting out of that kind of tracking on their Apple devices? I mean, we, I mean there are... We today give consumers many choices. We have clearly announced plans to, uh, you know, uh, face out third-party cookies. But there is a large ecosystem, and people use many services, including news publishers and content, and which are monetized by advertising. And so, we we are working with the advertising, ad, you know, with publishers, with regulators, to help drive this massive change across the ecosystem. I think I think we are. Uh, respo feel responsible to get it right. Was Apple hasty or irresponsible in moving so quickly without getting the proper feedback? I think they are coming at it with a different different viewpoint, and you know they don't operate uh, you know products for publishers the way we do, and so I think they are looking at it different. So I don't want to comment on that. I, you know, I think about what we should do as a company. Yeah. Now, in terms of your relationship with uh, American lawmakers, last year you spent nearly $10 million on lobbying. Uh, that is actually less than half of what you spent back in 2018. What does that tell you? Is scrutiny easing? Um, is the relationship getting better? Or has crypto replaced big tech as sort of the uh, punching bag? No, this definitely, you know, I think Internet and tech are playing an important role. And so there is definite scrutiny. I think it's important. Congress passes legislation. I think the U.S. is behind on privacy legislation. We have long called for strong federal privacy legislation. I think there's important legislation to be done around uh, children's safety online. Uh, I think I think I think scrutiny is important. I think we plan to engage constructively. And but there are important issues where we engage on when we say, for example making sure there is rural broadband or making sure people have access to digital skills are all topics we lobby on as yeah. well and and uh, including the importance of free speech and so i think i think these are complex topics and i think the next decades will have new rules written for the internet and you know we want to make sure we add perspective there too i mean you talk about things like rural access to the internet uh, some of the things in language processing that you talked about on stage today um, have really shown themselves to be so valuable during the pandemic. Would you say that the relationship has improved, become more constructive with lawmakers then in America? I mean, I think they, they always, I think they respond to areas where we see uh, doing good work, be it, be it COVID around pandemic, the help we did to make sure we got message on vaccines out or the work we are doing to contribute to small and medium businesses, particularly training them on digital transformation. So the many areas we see common ground. We're also innovating as a company. You started early asking about inflation. There are many areas as a company 
we lower prices. Mm -hmm. You know, tech is, uh, you know, people take it for granted, but year after year, we provide the services we do. Uh, and, you know, we, 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 we in our own ways contribute yeah. uh, to making sure uh, it's affordable for users. So I think there's a lot of areas of common ground as well. Carl and John, we did cover a lot of ground. We also got to more YouTube versus TikTok, Waymo, cloud. Um, you can read more about it on the internet on .com, and we'll bring more of that tomorrow. But guys, one major takeaway, at least to me, was his consistency. When you think about CEOs of these big companies not being sort of being nimble to what happens in the market, but having that long-term goal, it was clear that Sundar Pichai is thinking about these things well before they happen, just like he created Chrome, just like they're making this big bet on cloud. Their bet isn't profitable yet, but they're not going to change that strategy um, because the markets are treating them differently. Yeah, the, uh, you know, so many important areas you guys covered out of I.O., it just seems like they've got a platform or several platforms that are working for them. Uh, they announced immersive maps. They announced multi-search. There's this idea that they've got this growing digital inventory, unique digital mm -hmm. inventory that helps them to drive commerce. I mean, did you get the sense from him that that's part of what's driving his confidence? Yes, he says that they're nimble and they're rocks mm -hmm. ahead, but he, he didn't seem worried. Yeah, absolutely. I mean... Think about Alphabet at the start of the pandemic. They were first to send their employees home. They had all of the indicators, and that's really what I.O. is about. That's what they're doing. That's why he talks about artificial intelligence so often. It is allowing them to do more with the enormous amounts of knowledge, information, data that they have. So um, I like your point, John, on commerce, right, because they are doing so much more in this area. And as the nature of advertising changes, perhaps their business model will change along the way as well, Carl. They still get so much of their revenue, about 80% from digital advertising, but the landscape is changing. So he talked about diversification. He's talking about a subscription model. He talks about how they'll never put advertising on something like photos. Um, commerce is another area that they can get into, payments. Um, so, you know, all of those investments right now, for them at least, are intact. He's building for the long term. Yeah. Speaking of changing landscapes, fascinating to listen to you talk to him about uh, lifetime bans of Trump over at Twitter mm -hmm. and how, what that means for YouTube. I do wonder what his view is uh, if, in fact, Republicans take the House or the Senate uh, and uh, how that changes the regulatory risk picture. Yeah, it's a good question. He wasn't going to reveal to us what he would do. But a lot of what he said on free speech, guys, um, was kind of in line with what we hear from Elon Musk. He talked in broad terms, but he believes, he says that it is foundational, something that, you know, might play well with the Republicans, allow anyone on. Although, you know, he has had to make tough decisions like Jack Dorsey, like Mark Zuckerberg in suspending accounts. Um, but, you know, he says that the law guides him. So uh, we'll see. I mean, I, I didn't necessarily want to ask him specifically about Elon Musk, but I think that his takeover of Twitter has such important ramifications for one of the most sensitive parts of their business, right? Free speech and YouTube, the idea of amplifying or even, you know, suspending some accounts there. Yeah, nobody's anti-free speech. Of course not. But it's the asterisks and those, uh, those edge cases that you have to worry about. And he certainly uh, tried to navigate that deftly, D, though you put the question to him. Yeah. Um, and, John, I know you'll be interested in what he said on cloud. There was a moment, uh, there was a report a few years ago that said that if 
Google Cloud wasn't number one or two by 2023, that's only next year, would they continue to do this? He said that he actually wasn't aware of any such reports. And he was very adamant, as Ruth Porat is, the CFO, when we talked to her, that cloud is a huge pillar for them. They are not profitable yet, like Microsoft and Amazon's operations are, but they see the secular shift, as many do. So they are so committed to it, and they have been sort of bringing down losses. But Back to I.O., what they announced, the artificial intelligence side, the security side, that is how they want to differentiate their product from some of the other competitors. Yeah, uh, training tens of thousands of Americans uh, in cyber and security, among other areas, is just going to be a fascinating uh, positive externality, we think, uh, for the economy. Amazing, Dee. Uh, great to have him. Uh, Sundar Pichai of Alphabet. Still to come this morning, Disney's down 40 in the last 12 months. Shares falling again today, although they did bounce off of about 95, uh, 99 and a half. And we'll get a lot more on that after this break. Welcome back. Major averages off the highs. The S&P just about at break even. Meanwhile, time for a gut check on Disney. Shares are lower this morning, despite Disney Plus adding more streaming subscribers than expected. The issue here, CFO Christine McCarthy warning of softer growth. Disney also saying it's still seeing the impact of COVID on theme parks in Asia. For more on the quarter, let's get to Julia Borston. Julia, um, you know, it's tough to believe Disney around 100 bucks after everything we've been through. That would have seemed like an unthinkable bargain just a couple quarters ago. Yes, but there's just so much uncertainty now. And I think that's really what we saw the investors react to yesterday. I mean, going into the call, the stock was up a couple percent. And then Christine McCarthy started talking about how maybe the outperformance in streaming subscription ads in the first half of the year was not going to indicate similar outperformance in the second half of the year. Maybe there is a little bit of a pull forward. So I would note, John, that there are many, many, many differences between Netflix and Disney, including the fact that Disney has not completed its global rollout yet. But I think um, analysts and investors are trying to figure out not just will Disney be able to hit their target of between 230 and 260 million subs by 2024, but how valuable are those subscribers going to be, especially when you look at the fact that in at, with Hotstar in India, that partnership there, um, those subscribers are less valuable. So trying to really get to the heart of the profitability here, not just the growth. Interesting, Julia. You know, the, the streaming element is obviously topic A among a lot of investors. But if you look at the word count from the call, the most uh, mentioned word was Parks, followed by ESPN, followed by Hulu. They definitely want to push the idea that Parks have leverage here. Yeah, Parks have leverage. I was really struck by the fact that they saw a 40 percent increase in spending at the domestic parks massive strength at the domestic parks. Of course, we'll have to see if that continues in the su- into the summer um, with inflation and all these other concerns. But I also want to point out what Chapek was saying about ESPN. I thought it was really interesting that a number of times during the call, both in his prepared remarks and in the question and answer session, he talked about the potential to bring ESPN more direct to consumer and how they're going to be watching various factors, um, including, of course, the strength of the bundle as they evaluate how and when they could take that more direct to consumer. And a lot of that is because they see massive strength in their bundle, not the cable TV, pay TV bundle, but in their bundle of Hulu, ESPN Plus and Disney Plus. And by, you know, having all three of those things together, they're able to generate, you know, less churn as a result of that. Mm. 
Uh, Julia, there was this fun discussion on Fast Money last night. Rich Greenfeld from uh, Lightshed was talking about what Disney could acquire. He suggested Netflix um, because they are weakest in Netflix, rather, is weakest in kid content. So that combination could work. Um, he also suggested maybe a Roblox. What do you think? I mean, would investors actually like that move, that focus on the streaming platform versus where they are seeing the most strength right now, which is in parks? Rich always has has fascinating ideas here, and he is a close watcher of Disney. But what I will say is that, you know, the, one of the reasons why he's making these comparisons and saying, hey, Bob Iger made these bold acquisitions, maybe Disney under Bob Chapek should be making these bold acquisitions, is this idea of what does the future of Disney under Bob Chapek look like? So I think that, you know, Netflix is a complicated one, um, but I think that Roblox is interesting because of the fact that it is so focused on that younger demographic, but it is such a vastly different company. You know, when you look at Iger's acquisitions, they were all about intellectual property, taking those brands, bringing them into the Disney platform, and then exploiting those brands across platforms from parks to TV to movies. Roblox and Netflix are different. Netflix is, is a competitor to Disney Plus, so maybe it doesn't make sense. It's, it, you know, and I would wonder from a regulatory standpoint whether that would even be possible. And Roblox, it's a gaming platform. I mean, we've seen Disney move in, into the metaverse virtual reality space way back with Club mm. Penguin. You know, that was probably <laughs> 15 years ago. Yeah. So I do think they are interested in the in the metaverse and trying to figure out how to get more into the gaming space, but they may be able to do that without acquiring of Roblox. I mean, Julia, I know you say, you point out that there's uncertainty, but the last time, kind of without that pandemic, uh, you know, dump in consideration, the last time Disney was trading here around 100 bucks a share was back in uh, around this time in 2018, where there was this huge question of, could it even make the transition to streaming? I don't know if they had even committed to doing that. And Netflix looked like it was running away with things. One of the few things, some of the few things that are certain, I would think, is that eventually people are going to want to go back to parks. People still love Marvel. Look at those numbers out of Doctor Strange, the multiverse of madness. I mean, Disney seems to be a bastion of certainty, and Disney Plus looks like it's catching up to Netflix, and yet the stock is, is back at 100 bucks a share. I mean, that's, that's interesting. Yeah, it is interesting. And John, I would point out that Disney traditionally valued as a media company, Netflix valued more like a tech company in terms of valuations. And now we are having this conversation about whether those Netflix valuations should, valuations should come down more to media level valuations. But you're right in that Disney does have these fundamental advantages, especially when it, you think about if you're going to go out to a movie, you're probably going to go to a Disney type movie, one of those big budget movies with a familiar franchise. But when it comes to streaming, you know, we'll see how valuable those subscribers end up being. They were very confident they are going to hit those targets, but we'll see at what price point and, and how much the ad supported version of Disney Plus is going to help them raise their average revenue per user while also expanding that broader user base. But you make a good point about the differential in valuations there, John. Uh, fascinating. What, what a print. Uh, one of the ones we were looking to uh, forward to most this week, Julia. Thank you, uh, Julia Borston. Let's get a news update this morning. For that, we'll turn back to Christina parts Nevelos. Hi, Christina. Hi, Carl. Here's what's happening at this hour. Wholesale inflation rose 11% in April compared to a year ago. Inflation, of course we know this, remains elevated, but the monthly gain of a half a percent matched economist forecasts. And core inflation, that's not including food and energy prices, actually increased less than expected. Hyundai is recalling more than 215,000 mid-sized cars due to faulty fuel hoses that can leak into the engine and cause fires. 
The recall covers certain 2013 and 2014 Sonatas, many of which were previously recalled for the same problem back in 2020. Bitcoin remains under the $30,000 mark, although recovering somewhat from a broader sell-off that erased more than $200 billion in value from the crypto market. The digital currency had fallen under $26,000 for the first time since 2020. And other major crypto names like Ether and Litecoin are down over 25% each this week. Apple is no longer the world's most valuable company. Oil giant Saudi Aramco surpassed the U.S. tech giant with a $2.43 trillion market valuation. This comes as the recent tech sell-off coincides with a rally in energy stocks around the world. Deirdre, back over to you. Christina, thank you. As we head to break, let's get a quick check on the markets. The rally losing a little bit of steam. The Dow Industrial is down about half a percent. And the Nasdaq Composite still underperforming, but coming off the session highs, up four tenths of a percent. Plus, take a look at shares of SoftBank. They are down big this morning, uh, overnight in Tokyo, I should say, after reporting results. The Vision Fund reporting a record $27 billion loss in its last fiscal year as tech just got hammered, public and private holdings. Read more on CNBC.com. We're back after this break. Apple's down about 20% this year, no longer the world's most valuable company. Dom Chu joins us with a look at a stock that was viewed as a safe haven for a lot of investors. Question is, Dom, where they turn now? I mean, that's the real issue for a lot of folks out there, and that's the reason why you're seeing so much more conversation about consumer staple stocks and whatnot. But to your point about Apple, the current market capitalization of Apple still has it north of about $2.3 trillion. It's still by a large amount, the most valuable company in America, but it is now Saudi Aramco, the big state-controlled oil company in Saudi Arabia that has overtaken Apple as the most valuable company in the world. Maybe no surprise given the fact that energy prices, oil and natural gas prices are surging all over the place. So energy companies like Saudi Aramco, even here in the U.S. like ExxonMobil and of course Chevron are doing much better. But from, from a contextual point of view, Apple shares, having seen that move lower, as you point out, remember at the peaks, we were nearly worth just around $3 trillion. We've lost roughly $600 billion worth of market value since then. So to put it in context, it's kind of like losing an entire somewhere in between Meta platforms and Berkshire Hathaway. That's the kind of market cap destruction we've seen. Now, with regard to the performance versus the broader tech sector overall, and maybe even the broader market in general, over the course of the last year, you can still see Apple handily outperforming the technology sector more broadly. And then, of course, the S&P 500 as well. We're looking at this through the lens of ETFs. What will be more of a concern is whether or not this white line starts to then underperform hypothetically at any point the tech sector or the market overall. And the reason why a lot of folks are looking at that is encapsulated pretty well by the folks over at DataTrek Research. That is Nicholas Collis, also Jessica Rabe over there. In one of their notes to clients earlier this week, they talked a little bit about what it would be like in terms of Apple's price action if it were to start underperforming. And they said, this is, this is an interesting one, if Apple does eventually get caught up in a massive U.S. global equity downdraft, that will be one sign we are truly at an investable low. That's going to be curious. Given up on Apple with its global market share, long-term track record of profitability, and the Fortress balance sheet is something like the give up on America trade from 2009. So at least the folks at DataTrek are looking at this as a possible tea leaf if and when Apple does tend to underperform the broader market. And where do analysts stand right now, guys? It is still predominantly bullish. 
Right now, the average target price for Apple is $189.03. That implies a 30% rough gain there. And by the way, 74% of analysts, John, still have a buy rating on Apple right now. Back over to you. So we should be hoping for Apple to underperform if we want to see a bottom. That's complicated. It's still higher for the year. Dom, thank you. You got it. Coming up, where Bitcoin could be headed next. It's about 29,000, almost 400. Stay with us. Get a gut check on Bumble today, one of those names that got dumped amid the broader sell-off. But shares on the rebound today following Q1 earnings, a beat on revenue and EPS, the number of paying users increasing to 3 million souls. But the guides breaking a few hearts coming in under consensus for the current quarter. A few firms on the street take a step back. J.P. Morgan, Ray, Ray J., Jeffries all cut their price targets. Cowing, though, uh, is upping theirs to 38. Uh, it did bounce off the intraday low under 19 and then went to 24. Uh, this morning. Some incredible volatility in a lot of these names. Tech Check is back in just a moment. Welcome back. Bitcoin continues to fall while multiple stablecoins are now below a dollar. Kate, when we talk about the stablecoin piece of this, walk us through why a potential run on a stablecoin or run on a stablecoin would actually result in sort of larger crypto contagion. Yeah, so these stablecoins are really important to the crypto market in general. Traders tend to use them to get in and out of positions quickly instead of cashing out to dollars and getting off of an exchange. They often sit on the sidelines in either Tether is the biggest, $80 billion market cap. That's the one people are now watching for potential risk and a bigger risk than what we've seen with Terra, which is the third largest. And a lot of people were just buying it because it came with this 20% yield. It's the third largest. Tether is really the one to watch. It's now at 99 cents. It's lost the peg before. That's the big question, though. And people are saying that's a bigger indication of if the market can stabilize, if it can hold on to that. That's a huge thing for market sentiment right now. Something we've talked about is the yields, right, that Binance and some of the other platforms pay to hold Tether. Yeah. Um, does that still occur while all of this is going on, or is that in danger soon? It, it does. Well, this was the big thing with Terra as well. So that's the stable coin that dropped its peg one-to-one to about 20 cents. So that was really the one that's collapsing this week. That was offering about a 20% yield. Tether right. sort of the same thing. So there are these incentives to buy in. The question is, we haven't seen a test like this right. in the markets. Yeah. And this is really... All of these are economic experiments. And it continues to play out. So we'll see what happens with it. Kate, thank you. Thanks, Steve. Still to come on the show, more from my interview with Alphabet Sundar Pichai, including his comments on TikTok. Don't go away. Let's get a gut check on Sonos, delivering a beat across the board. Second quarter revenue up 20%. The company saying it's facing supply chain issues fueled by COVID lockdowns in China, which it projects will last at least through the end of the year. That's putting pressure on margins as well. DA Davidson and Stiefel cutting their price targets, but it doesn't seem to be weighing on the stock. Shares up about, uh, let's see, 15% this morning, putting it back at Friday's levels. More Tech Check in a moment. Welcome back. Groundhog Day for Roblox shares. Got a massive pop at the open yesterday. That faded throughout the day. Today, it's up again about 19% right now, putting it, like Sonos, back at Friday's levels. 
some strange trading uh, after revenue and profitability missed expectations. Some strange trading overall today, uh, John. The Nasdaq has turned negative now down four-tenths of a percent. Uh, we want to bring you some more from my exclusive interview with Alphabet CEO Sundar Pichai. We also spoke about YouTube, which accounted for over 11 percent of the company's total revenue last year. This past quarter, the company did miss the street's estimates as TikTok continues to dominate the short-form video space. So I asked Pichai how big of a threat TikTok is. To me, um you know, YouTube, people forget that YouTube was short form video, right? I think, I think the users constantly evolve to newer places. I think there is real excitement around what, what is today called short form video. Uh, uh, and, and, you know, it's a, to me what's exciting is it's a, it's a big area in which we're seeing a shift in the platform. The uh, creators are responding and users are uh, adopting it. And so we definitely see strong growth. Uh, YouTube through the pandemic has turned out to be a more important platform than we ever imagined. And, you know, we see healthy indicators on the platform. So again, you know, we have to respond to what users are asking for. And, you know, we are trying to give them the best experience. And, and so we feel challenged to do better. That's how I would think about it. Is, is TikTok a threat then? Do you think of it in those terms? Uh, I think there's always going to be, you know, now having been in on the internet for over two decades. You're constantly going to have new services come and people will use that. Mm -hmm. You know, things like Snapchat, all of this didn't exist a few years right. ago, right? And, and it shows the power of mobile as a platform, how, how much opportunity there is for innovation and creating new things, uh, which shows how competitive and vibrant <laughs> the underlying sector is. And so for me, these, this is all more evidence of that. And, you know, uh, as companies, we always have to be nimble and we have to adapt. And that's how it feels every Monday when I come into work. The TikTok piece of it is different in that it's owned by a Chinese company. I lived in China for a number of years. I couldn't access Google. I'd have to log on to my VPN even to get my Gmail. Um, is there a double standard, though? TikTok has grown completely unfettered here in the United States. Um, it is so popular now. Um, do lawmakers here have your back, have American companies' backs in letting Chinese companies grow so large here while our companies are banned over there? Look, I, I, mean, I would go back to my earlier point. I think part of the reason I think it's really important Congress, uh, you know, tackles and, and all the, the industry has to play a role and, and be constructive and supportive too on privacy and children's safety. I think the more we have, you know, clear rules and frameworks, which applies to everyone. I think that's how we can, we can make progress on topics like this. Do you think, though, lawmakers should be harder on China, just given that clear sort of distinction, that bifurcation that we see between the two countries, the standards that our companies are held to versus theirs? Well, the, way, the way I think about it is, look, we, we have an uh, open internet, and you know, as a company, we have strongly believed in an open internet, and I think that foundation is important. So I think, you know, the U.S. should work to maximize uh, a open, interconnected uh, internet, and and as part of that, and making sure people as user uh, as users are protected, and 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 I think those are the two main responsibilities in terms of at least how I would think about approaching it. 
Guys, he was not going to bite on that China question and double standards, even though that clearly exists. Um, but the fact that we are talking about TikTok so often, uh, Meta doesn't hesitate to talk about the competition. Um, Sundar Pichai is talking a lot more about their version shorts. It is becoming sort of and continues to be that elephant in the room for all streaming platforms. Yeah, I mean, he's the CEO of Google, D, but he knows how to deliver a subtweet. I mean, comparing Pinterest to Snapchat and I'm sorry, comparing TikTok to Snapchat and Pinterest, which nobody sees as a threat to them, and then uh, saying TikTok shows it's competitive out there. So we're not a monopoly. Yeah. Meanwhile, guys, the FT has a piece about China saying it will now strictly limit citizens from going abroad. Just adding to that uh, growing sense that we're winding up with splinternets, uh, two very large uh, pieces of the Internet all around the world. That's going to be something to watch in the months and quarters and years ahead. Obviously, we got that Disney print out of the way. One more day as the markets are shooting for the longest losing weekly losing streak in more than a decade. Let's get to the half. You've been listening to CNBC's Tech Check. You can always catch us live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern.